HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American international style and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country? For more information, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. This is your host, Greg Blaze. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Susan Sturman and Stephanie Ciano about some current events in the cheese business. And today, we're going to address another hot topic in cheese, name protection and the importance of geography in naming cheeses. I'm very lucky to have two esteemed cheese professionals in the booth with me today. Rachel Perez is here, French cheese ambassador and member of the ACS Judging and Competition Committee, among many other cheese-related roles. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm good. Thanks, Craig. Cool. I also have David Grotenstein in the studio today, better known as David G., an industry veteran for over 30 years. A fun fact about David is that he's one of the few people to have tasted the actual wheel of each Best of Show cheese at the ACS competition for the past 13 years. Is that right, David? Up until this year. This is the first year I, I broke my ankle in the spring and I missed the conference for the first time. Oh, that's right. I remember seeing you. You were uh, dragging a can boot around with you. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for being here today. Thanks, Thank you. Greg. It's great to be here. So back in March, there was a lot of press around the wedge, so to speak, that Cheese was putting in free trade negotiations between the European Union and the U.S. as the European Commission tries to restrict the use of some cheese names by U.S. producers. Some cheese names which are pretty common in the popular American vernacular like Parmesan, Feta, and Munster. Since 2011, the EU has put in place active free trade agreements with countries like South Korea, Colombia, Peru, and our neighbors to the north, Canada, and fellow cheese, um, American Cheese Society member. In each of, these arguments, or each of these agreements, the use of certain cheese names has been restricted. Um, as the U.S. Continue, continues trade talks with Europe, just this past Friday again, there was another article in the L.A. Times speaking to the role that cheese is playing in these negotiations. So, Rachel, my first question is for you. 
As someone who represents French cheesemakers, can you summarize this issue for us and tell us what's the big deal with what we're calling our cheeses here in the United States? Sure, Greg. Um, so uh, the the French uh, milk marketing board called the CNIEL has a stance on, on this issue, and we say we try to uh, look at it pragmatically. So cheeses that have historically used American or European names, we want to continue to allow them to use those names. Uh, for me, where it gets a little gray is other PDO cheeses that we do see in the U.S. but aren't as widely seen or distributed. And um, that is really where we're looking to sort of restrict some, uh, some name calling. PDO cheeses. Uh, maybe you could let our listeners know what PDO stands for. PDO stands for Protected Designation of Origin, which um, is supposed to represent a, a recipe and a quality standard of uh, a cheese, a wine, or um, other ingredients that are coming from Europe. In France, it used to be called AOC, and since the uh, unification of the European Union, we've transferred the names from AOC to PDO. And the PDO uh, cheeses are all protected by a consortium. Correct. And that consortium, um, are they the ones that are pushing for this, uh, these free trade agreements, or is it the EU? So, so the consortiums, for the most part, have already trademarked their names. So it's an issue separate to the consortiums. It's more the, the EU, the, uh, the larger bodies, the larger government bodies who are pushing this, uh, this issue. So it's, it's, it's a naming issue, but what's, I guess, what, what is the, when you say that you're pragmatic, uh, or the French are pragmatic about this. Um, so, so people that in the United States that have uh, that have made cheese that they're calling Munster, that isn't Munster Alsace, but have already made it. The the the, the stance of the French, I guess, government in terms of the dairy portion of the French government uh, says that it's okay for the United States makers to keep using those names. Correct. Um, a good example, I think, is Camembert. So we have a lot of American producers who are making Camembert. Um, the AOC name for Camembert, or the PDO name for Camembert, is Camembert de Normandie. And Camembert de Normandie needs to be made in Normandy. It needs to be made with raw milk. You need to scoop your curd five times. There's very strict standards about calling your cheese Camembert de Normandie. Yeah. Um, but just the name Camembert is kind of a nebulous name that you can use uh, in the U.S. and... Um, but Camembert refers to a place, does it not? Well, initially, I guess it does refer to a place, but uh, it also refers to a specific type of cheese. You know, that's what... When you say that, what do you mean? That there's a recipe for Camembert. There's a technique for, for making Camembert. Certain cultures you're supposed to use, the way you're supposed to ripen it, how you develop your cultures. And so uh, for the ACS judging, for example, Camembert is its own subcategory within the soft-ripened cheese category. So that, to me, is the challenge here, is to separate those which might just be names of cheeses or names of wines are involved in this also. But what are those that are real types of cheese? This is a type of cheese. It's made th through a specific uh, stand has standard of identity, Again, has a recognizable flavor, texture, whatever it is. And that's how we uh, uh, judge cheeses is based on what, what they are. So it's a type, again, feta is feta. Uh, calling it something else would just be confusing. Well, here's a question for you. So, you, so the ACS has a, a category of cheese that's called Camembert, correct? It has a, it is a subcategory. Subcategory. It's a subcategory. Yeah, it's a subcategory of the soft ripened cheeses. But but 
And so the cheeses are judged based on their ability to mimic that recipe accurately? Or Not to imitate necessarily a Camembert du Normandy, but to bring in the characteristics that would be uh, a Camembert versus a Brie, let's say. So uh, uh, it has a fruitiness, it has a, a specific uh, rind development, has a, it's an eight-ounce wheel, it's got, you know, it's got its... And that's where we mm. as French producers draw the line, is the recipe versus the PDO name of Camembert mm. de Normandie. Yeah. Now, when you, when you set up the criteria for judging those, where, what input did you get from the people who made the original Camembert, if any? None. Uh, not to my knowledge. I mean, we, you know, these, uh, again, this is, uh, this is a rather recent development, yeah. this EU thing. And cheeses have been made for, um, uh, some of these cheeses have been made for 100 years, more than 100 years, uh, uh, under the names that they're they are using. So it's a little bit late in the game for some, uh, you know, to change cheddar, for example, if that's on the table. You know, how would you do that? And that's where the French marketing board stands, is that we don't want to change names that have historically been used in the States, but we mm. also want to protect some of our smaller producers who are making cheese and have their cheeses have a sense of French identity in the American marketplace. And how, how is it – so, so the, the people that you represent, maybe you can tell us who exactly you represent. So I represent uh, six of the, the last fran- family-owned uh, French producers who still export to the States. So I represent Grand Orge, who is in Normandy. They are producers of Livarot and uh, Pont Levesque, things like that. They also make Camembert de Normandie, um, and we don't do any any real Camembert for the U.S. Um, I do Jacquin, who makes ash-ripened goat cheeses in the Loire Valley. So Jacquin is still owned by the Jacquin family. Uh, Fromagerie Lassé in Burgundy. So we have Chaours, we have Delice de Bourgogne, we have... Briat Savarin, we have Epoise, we have Sumatra. Riboire uh, Jacquemin, who's out in Comté, so I represent a Comté producer. Uh, Paul Duchamp, who does cheeses from Auvergne, so Saint-Nectaire, Bleu d'Auvergne, and Fum d'Ambert. Oh, wow. Um, and Jean Fope, who makes Beth Mal in the Pyrenees. And these producers, are they're concerned, and this is speculative, of course, they're, they're concerned is that going forward, if a larger amount of cheeses are made in America using names that are also representative of their cheeses, that this will cause a loss of identity? Will it cause their brand to weaken, the product to be lesser, misinformation, or all of those things? I think it's a little bit of all of that. And, um, you know, especially in cheesemaking where um, your, your brand is so tied to your end product that they want to be able to know that, you know, within the you know the umbrella of of say Chaours that you know Lancer Chaours is represented as Lancer Chaours and that somebody who is making Chaours outside of Champagne is not um, producing a product of you know better or or lesser quality um, and trying to pass it off as Chaours. And does that happen? It, it happens every once in a while. Um, Showers is a consortium, so we, um, if it does happen, we have a nice little lawyer who will write a letter to the producer <laughs> <laughs> asking him to not call his cheese that. And so far, everyone has been very understanding and has changed the name of their cheese. As a retailer, how would this affect you? I mean... Well, it's. Uh, uh, I'm not sure when you say how it would affect me. What the death change the names of cheeses would be. Well, I mean, mammoth, be uh, huge, correct? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you would. Uh, uh, where you know, customer would come in and say, "Where is the brie?" And so we can't call it brie anymore. So how would that be? Uh, um, 
It seems like it's the opposite of when uh, we were, you know, the the U.S. government was upset with the French government, so we decided to start calling things freedom fries. Yeah, uh, but it's the opposite of that. Correct. Well, and you want and you don't want people to be on the opposite side. It's supposed to be working out a yeah. trade agreement here, and so we want to be on the same side uh, as everything. And I think uh, as a retailer. Uh, and a retailer for a long time, there's always been this tremendous respect and understanding for those protected entities, you know, that nobody here, as far as I would know, would think to call it a cheese a show or, or to call it a, a, a Camembert du Normandy or anything that was clearly a protected name. So how do we uh, define these cheeses? Because, again, some of them are just types of cheeses. Uh, uh, and for us as retailers, uh, you know, you're the same same boat that uh, Greg that uh, uh, we I am. Li- we like to we like to point out that these are the authentic cheeses. Whether they or the authentic cheeses from Europe were here before we had this gigantic international cheese marketplace, and before we had this gigantic movement uh, upswing in the uh, American cheeses that we're uh, seeing. Uh, now, so we have we've always relied on uh, and celebrated uh, these great cheeses that have come to us from Europe. So, as a retailer, it's just to me, it's just part of the job to define these cheeses as we've always done to the consumer. And and for the French, for for my producers, it is an issue of of traceability, and we want you to mm. be able to call something a cheese and know that it comes from a certain region. Where names start getting nebulous, if you just put something out as Camembert and you have. <coughs> You know, 50 different producers who are making camembert, how do you know which producer you're getting? Right. And so, so that's where um, these trade laws are starting to, you know, affect. Traceability is a big, yeah. is a big issue, and that's a big word. And I was, I've just gotten back from, from Italy uh, less than 24 hours ago, and I was meeting with a consortium, um, the consortium that protects prosciutto di Parma. And we spoke about traceability, but we didn't speak about it in the same way that we're talking about it now. The way that we spoke about traceability or the biggest reason for that was so that they could in, – in terms of making prosciutto di Parma, they wanted you to know what farm that hog came from in case they had to recall those products mm-hmm. or there was a defect. And that I can completely understand. Uh, but you're talking about a different kind of traceability, a sort of regional oh. historical traceability. Well, and, and – uh, uh uh, authenticity, I guess. Is- exactly. Yeah. So um, I've seen in my my vast travels across the U.S., I've seen a couple uh, cheese shops that have had uh, ash ripened goat cheeses from the Loire Valley that I represent through Jacquin um, that are calling them by their AOC name. So they're calling them Valence. They're calling them Samor. Which, if you look at it carefully, those cheeses need to be made with raw milk in order to be called those names. Now, we in the U.S. have sort of, you know, been lax about that, and we associate these pyramid or trapezoidal-shaped cheeses with Valence and the log cheeses with reed in them as Samor, even though those are technically not their names because they are made with pasteurized milk. Now, that brings me to a follow-up question for you. What is – is it the ability to call something – some <laughs> call an object something it isn't that's most bothersome to you? For me personally, yes. But on a larger scale, for the, the people you represent, um, because it's a touchy, it's a touchy subject. Because well, you want to sell as much cheese exactly. as possible, so you are a retailer, right? And you'll you'll never you'll never pass a law or make a rule that will compensate for an irresponsible retailer. No. Never, Just whether they happen. whether they don't know what they're talking about or whether they're genuinely misrepresenting something intentionally. Uh, 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 either way. 
Uh, and that's why I have a job. It's because yeah. my job is to educate all these people. Right. About this and it's, a, it's a offensive to those of us retailers who try to work very hard to make sure we've got exactly what we want and what we, that we know how to present it to our, our customers, you know, so that uh, when somebody is calling something something it's not, it makes us all kind of angry. But, uh, again, it's a, a, a broad brush, you know, to kind of try and compensate for this this. Problem, and you said yourself that it's uh, Rachel that it's a smaller number of retailers. It's not. No, it's a very small number. So, agreements have been reached with countries. With um, I believe we got South Korea, Colombia, Peru, Canada, Mm -hmm. that they aren't allowed to call things. They aren't allowed to use certain names anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, What about the United States? Uh, we there's been no no agreement has been reached just yet. We're still in negotiations. American um, cheese producers are very concerned about this, uh, rightfully so. I think. It, Why do you think they're so concerned? I, I mean, for well, to ha- well, I mean, for any any number of reasons, you know, just the uh, the sca- the economy <laughs> of having to change the name of your cheese. Well, that's yeah, that's a little you know much. Uh, to change all your labeling to change all, uh, the uh, confusion that I think would take place on the consumer side. You know, there's a there's a sentiment here that this will clear up things for the consumer, but uh, the potential is there for it to do the opposite, which is that all of a sudden these cheeses that you've known for a long time have different names and different identities. Um, uh, that's that to me is a, a bigger potential hazard. Yeah, I agree with that definitely. Yeah. It's it's funny as I read through my list of of the names of these cheeses that the countries agreed not to use anymore. Almost well, they're they're uh, they're not if they're they're importing those cheeses. They'll sell those real versions of those cheeses, but they won't import or sell other versions. Mock. That's what it, mock cheeses, right? That's what it is. Because the, the names that they're using, uh, I'll just give you an example. Uh, in Korea, non-European cheese producers can no longer sell Asiago, Feta, Fontina, or Gorgonzola. Now, those are, um, uh, except for Feta, which is in this strange gray area of being a cheese from, from Greece that is at the center, or not the center, but that, that is being discussed in this, uh, this free trade agreement mm-hmm. as what, what is Feta, why do we not protect that name? I believe the EU wants that name to yep. be protected, correct? Correct. So other than that, they're all Italian. My whole list is just full of <laughs> Italian cheeses here. Um, Canada, same. Asiago, Feta, Fontina, Gorgonzola. Uh, but they have Munster <clears throat> in there too. Um, Costa Rica, Italian producers. So it seems like the Italians are a little bit more... Um, stringent in the use of those pe- uh, of their of their name protected words, or maybe um. Well, I think there's a big tradition of a, of Italian immigrants in the U.S. and Italian immigrants making Italian style cheese. There in the is, US. there is definitely, and I see that all all of the time. And people ask me for Fontina and Gorgonzola all of the time, and without having any real clue um, as to where it actually comes from what those cheeses actually represent well and i think where where this situation gets you know very very gray for for cheesemakers is you know when somebody says they want gorgonzola when in fact they're just looking for, for blue, blue cheese, cheese right. or they're looking for brie when you know they're just looking for a bloomy rind cheese or you know they're looking for provolone when they want a pasta filata. it's it's interesting i mean it and they do all the time yeah. they, they, people think that the word provolone covers 
pretty much everything. Right. It, it cut both. <laughs> it's just, that's a word that just gets used, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. when people come to my counter at, at Italy where I work, um, they ask me for provolone um, because they have no idea what else to ask me for. Right. And I try to explain to them that I – first I tell them I don't sell it. And then they are look at me like I'm crazy, and I, you know, I direct them to other names of other cheeses. I mean, that's that's just. Um, and do you uh, think that uh, being a little stricter with names would help? Well, I, I buy things for your. your I customers? do actually, I do, but I'm torn as a retailer. I want, I want to sell cheese, you right. know. So, I mean, that's why I, I don't want to sell it at any cost, though. You don't want to. You want again. You I want don't. To, yeah, you want to. I be, don't. You know, and and the the truth should work best generally when you're selling something. You know that you really just want to say what be able to say what it is. You would think so. <laughs> <laughs> so look, guys, we're going to have to take a short break here, but uh, when we come back, we'll discuss this very interesting topic even further. We'll be right back. Farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd, live on the Heritage Radio Network. Before the break, I was talking with Rachel Perez and David G. about an important issue in the cheese industry right now. As the EU and U.S. pursue free trade talks, the use of certain cheese names by American cheesemakers, cheese names like Parmesan, Feta, and Munster, is an important part of the negotiations. I'd like to bring the topic of geographical name protection closer to home. We do not have a system here, as they have in Europe, to protect products that are produced in certain places. 
Interestingly enough, there was just an article in the Wall Street Journal on Friday talking about artisan products made in Brooklyn and the global spread of Brooklyn, the brand name. The article mentions Bulgarian-made Brooklyn gin, for example. And this year, the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce launched a certified Brooklyn-made label for local manufacturers. So what are your thoughts on this, and what do you both think the future of geographic indication in the United States, not just for cheese, but for wine and other agricultural products is, like Washington State apples or Idaho potatoes? Well, uh, you know, that's, they're different things. Actually, the, the, the things you just mentioned, they we're putting a lot of different ingredients into the ragu here. But, but, uh, it's a that, big there's, stew. <laughs> there's a difference between an Idaho potato and Brooklyn made. One is an agricultural designation, and the other is a branding issue. No, the potatoes aren't growing out of the ground in Brooklyn, you know. Uh, uh, and so uh, the issues facing or the challenges facing someone like, like Napa Valley, they would, there's some talk about uh, um, – uh, name protection for wines from there, which would make more sense as a protection because that's where the agriculture is. That's where the uh, winemaking is. That's where the grapes grow. Uh, Brooklyn is a manufacturing center. But again, we're, 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 uh, uh, there is some agriculture going on in, in Brooklyn, but it's on rooftops. Well, those you know? are kind yeah. of the same two sides of the argument yeah. with this name yeah. protection. So they're different. So they're different, I- they're different issues. They're, one is, again, one is a branding exercise, which we're all for, we're all for that you know, but again, it's not to confuse it with the uh, protection uh, uh, issue. That's a little bit uh, different. What I don't understand, and and even through our first segment, is it, it's not completely clear to me which names the EU wants to protect. I, I would like to talk about this Brooklyn thing, but I want Is it? Is, did I not, just not get there, or or is it not clear to? You either, as a person who represents members of the EU, <laughs> it's it's mostly not clear to me. I mean, I think we've all heard those same names of of feta, of provolone, of mm-hmm. gorgonzola. Um, well, and there's no formal proposal on the table no. yet. It's like this is like a big idea that's been put out there uh, that has some merit to it. A lot, you know, a good deal of merit to it, but. Uh, but um, Brie and Camembert have not been put on the table. Right. Um, so they haven't. They haven't. No. So this is just. This is, we're just in the very preliminary stages of worry here. Mm. Yeah. And what about consumers? Like, you know, how, how does this affect consumers? I know I want to talk about Brooklyn and local things, but I, how does what we just discussed before the break affect consumers? We talked about how it affected retailers. Yeah. Well, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we like to blame the consumer a lot for things that they don't know. Unfortunately, I do that all the time. But uh, it's, uh, the truth of the matter is that we're in the uh, uh, greatest era of customer awareness in the history of the planet, you know, in the internet era. Uh, there's more information uh, available. Sometimes there's too much misinformation available as well. But generally, you know, my, I have customers that come into the store and they're reading ingredient labels as if they're going to sign a prenuptial agreement. Yeah, they're looking happens. at everything on the label. So I don't think that there is a real issue for, let's say, country of identity. David, what store? Just so our listeners know, what store are you referring to? You're, uh, uh, these days, working with Union Market in, in uh, and you in, have an extensive the, cheese selection there. Yeah, we have about three hundred cheeses in the store. You know, and people come in and they ask about the cheeses. You put all your information on your on your label on your pre cuts, and you put all your information on your signs, uh, and then people ask uh, uh, ask their questions. But they're looking for. Uh, the customers are coming into our store. They're looking for very specific types of cheeses. They're looking for cheeses from place. They're asking for American cheeses, or they're asking for imported cheeses, or they're asking for raw milk cheeses. So I think it's a, also. Do you have customers who come in and ask for feta who specifically want Greek feta? 
They do sometimes. They, and want, they ask for Greek feta. They, they ask, ask for Greek. For feta. They'll ask for French feta also. I mean, they'll ask for for what they like or what they believe to be. So the maybe it's not cheese. the word feta. It just has to, the 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 prefix has to be attached to it. Is well, that? that would be the way to protect the cheese. If you really thought that Greek feta was so radically different than Bulgarian feta, uh, you would protect Greek feta. That would be the name to protect, not just all feta. Because each country, you know, the, the, the whole concept of, of name protection came from before there was an EU and before there was this gigantic market. Right. That, that, uh, that uh, uh, it was to protect cheesemakers within their own countries so that people in France didn't confuse a camembert with a camembert de Normandy. Uh, and uh, uh, in Italy as well, that, uh, that uh, knockoffs were, uh, didn't intrude onto those. That, this is my 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 other question about this is that you have two separate bodies that, uh, at work here in the, in this name I wouldn't say it's a war in this name control <laughs> issue that we are speaking of right now in regards to the 2011 initiative that the EU where they, the EU I guess is just deciding like we need to we need to clean up what people call things and uh, you know get our, get our ducks in a row if, if people are going to use our, the names. Of these cheeses from our region, you know, they, they there needs to be some accountability there. Uh, but that's a different body of of regulators than the people who are the consortiums that protect these. And to me, it seems like an issue of like state government versus federal government. Well, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of the consortiums have a uh, trademark their names, so that in itself is a that whole separate them. issue. They're 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 good, mm. um, and they probably don't. Well, they, do they even want to deal with this, or they they're okay with it? You know, I, I, I've had a couple issues, and, you know, we have a lawyer, and uh, he'll write a nice little letter, and then generally... But it gets that, cleaned that, up, yeah, right? Yeah, then that's it. And are those consortiums willing to work with... Amer- because the idea is, like, is education, right. and uh, to go along with your... To go along with our, our selling cheese. Mm-hmm. We don't want to sell cheese at any cost. Uh, we want to educate people while we do it. Well, and I guess I, I have some concern also that uh, uh, is, is this rule just for uh, other countries? Does it relate to countries within the EU as well? For example, we've been talking about Fontina as an Italian cheese, but the Danish make Fontina. Will they have to stop? I don't know. That's very confusing to me as well because most people who come to the counter at Italy ask for Fontina mm-hmm. Not having any idea what I'm selling them because the product Fontina from the Valle d'Aosta is completely different from all of these other Fontina that are out there, and I find myself really wishing that they couldn't call everything Fontina. Well, but again, you have the cheese that's protected. That's what I enjoy telling people. Actually, it's like, well, here are your choices in Fontina. This is the original Fontina. It's, no other cheese tastes like it. You give them the whole. You can tell them everything about. It. It's an opportunity. To, to educate. educate the customer, you know, that's a great way so, to look at it. So uh, 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 that there is a difference. All Fontina, Chuck Schumer the other day said, <laughs> "Did you see that?" He said, "The Munster is Munster, no matter how you slice it." Which yeah, is unfortunate. That's not true. That's what a customer may think. And as you said early on, there's Munster that you slice, and there's Munster Hermitage, and that they're they're different. And that's what you want to. Uh, that's the opportunity I think that you want with the customers to explain it, explain what they're explain what they're looking for to them. And I think I think part of this issue has come up in part because American cheese making and American consumers are getting more involved in the cheese business and buying cheese and selling cheese and producing cheese. And that as a result, that you need to have a little more traceability behind who's making what and who's calling what. So what's the future for us in the United States with our products? Are we going to get there? Are we going to are we going to be able to name protect our products here? Do you think? 
Well, we're we're um, relatively brand new as a country on that scene. We are. You know, uh, you know, uh, 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 countries that have been making cheeses have been making them for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, uh, um, deciding what those uh, protectable items might be is a, a, a new challenge. But well, I think that's an interesting point because when did the consortium? When did name protection actually begin in Europe? You know, I mean, we're talking uh, 20th century for all of Italy, but we know that Parmigiano has been being made since the 1100s. Right. So, um, but protection is a fairly recent. It really is. I think it was right right around World War One that it sort of started popping up, and I mean, there's um, PDOs that have popped up, you know, in the last 15, 20 years too. So it takes a while to get there. You need some 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 dollars behind you. Well, and if you're going to protect, (laughs) yeah, that's true, right? And if you're going to protect something, it really should be something that's a proven entity, not just a uh, a a relatively new item. So so uh, um, that's almost like what we're waiting for. And you know, in the meantime, um, American cheesemakers don't seem to be really wrapped up in using traditional cheese names. We are we're looking at hundreds of clever, different, descriptive, uh, fun. Cheese names that people are, are and that's mostly they, they what want. I've seen is you know out of respect for the original cheesemakers that a lot of Americans have just opted not to call their cheese, even though it's based on a European style, they don't call it by its European name. Well, because most in most cases, would you agree uh, those cheesemakers probably have have learned in some way from their Europe from the exactly. European folks. Yeah. So so they're they. I think there's a there's a fine line between well, it's made that first step on that road. Well, yeah. it's it's like credit. You know, you want to give credit. If you write a term paper, you need to cite your sources. So saying that mm. I make this cheese and I call it, you know, uh, whatever brownstone mm. blue, mm. Right. Uh, but it's a Roquefort recipe. Well, that's a, that's a Pleasant Ridge Reserve. It's a Beaufort recipe, right? And, right. And, you and know, you, they they say that, but it's their own spin on it and they gave it its own name and i mean uh spring hill also they make a raclette style that they changed the name from raclette to redding that just happened right that happened yeah a little while ago uh, six months ago or a year ago so it's, it's interesting i mean this, this is like a kind of and i've learned a lot just talking it's kind of like a nebulous kind of moving parts very a lot much of moving, so. moving parts as an argument, or not an argument, or as as an issue, because as you say, as soon as you start talking about this one thing, mm-hmm. um, immediately so many other ingredients to name protection uh, they come in. Yeah, that's right, and everybody kind of jumps on that uh, bandwagon a little bit. And especially now, I think we're all looking for labeling and certifications mm-hmm. and all these sort of accreditations mm-hmm. to make sure that product is actually what it's saying it is. To our consumer's benefit and also to a certain extent to everybody's detriment because then you are sort of confined by by your label. How do we we educate uh, retailers, you know, to put their cheeses out there properly? How do we get that? How do we, you know, regardless of any EU – I mean, so you have – Perseverance. Yeah. Well, and I mean, from a producer side, I think it's important, you know, that um, I've worked a lot with my producers to make sure that we're putting ingredient lists in to make sure that we're saying whether it's pasteurized milk, whether it's raw milk, whether it's made with animal rennet, microbial rennet, vegetable rennet. Um, You know, the more information we can get to to retailers, the more information is going to get hopefully get. And the retailer has has again, as we said earlier, the retailer has a real responsibility here to get that information into their own heads and then out to the customers. Yeah, that's that's really where it all where it all 
comes down to where they, that's the look, the end user, the retailer, really has that ultimate responsibility to make all of these things work, um, regardless of what legislation is put in place. Sure. It seems. And something like our our example earlier with gorgonzola, when somebody looks for blue, if you show them that you have gorgonzola, but you also have other varieties of blue, I think that also educates your consumer to let them know that there is a variety of blue cheese beyond gorgonzola. Well, and you get this. I bet you get this all the time. People come in, they ask for pecorino, and they're really asking for pecorino romano. That's really what they're looking Absolutely. for. Absolutely. But they just say pecorino. And know. everything is a learning opportunity. Right. I mean, for when, and I do get asked that. I get asked for when when people come up and they and they help, they'll ask me for two things. They'll be like, I want a gorgonzola, but not a blue cheese. You know what I mean? I don't want any blue cheese. I don't like blue cheese, but I want a gorgonzola. Right. And, I'm, and so I got to <laughs> I sort through that language. And then I – and you got to use all of those things as an opportunity to educate. Right. You know, um, right. in my horrible Italian, I'll tell people like <laughs> – uh, pecorino means pecora, um, which means sheep, and uh, pecorino toscano means sheep from Tuscany. Right. You go through all of those of those things. Um, right. It's a compressed environment, so as a retailer, you really have to be concise with your with your language. And um, I still am not, and I'm glad we get to talk about this, but I'm still not exactly clear what cheeses the EU is trying to well, protect. They, they may not be quite clear themselves. I don't think that they're either, clear right? themselves they're, they're, uh, Again, this idea is just hitting the table. And I think it's kind of left open so that cheeses can get put into this category or taken out sort of Well, at, this should be a dialogue. This yeah. should be a dialogue between uh, uh, the countries that it's going to happen to. It shouldn't just be an edict from the EU. We should really, and if they're thinking in terms of cheeses that are already established as, as common names and they're not going to touch them, what else is like that? Well, it's funny. I mean, and I'll leave you guys with one more question. Uh, so we've talked a lot here on the show about uh, the FDA and regulations. We talked about wood boards. We talked about parts per million E. coli in, in, you know, in, in milk. We've talked about uh, many different things. But uh, I feel like this is, is and will grow to be as important an issue as all of those things. And I was wondering if you guys agreed with me on that. Oh, I think if it, so, falls, why? it falls right in line with that. So uh, Morbier, for example, right now, we can't, Morbier is not allowed in the U.S. because of the bacteria counts. Um, but you go into, you know, one in every three retailers still has still a Morbier-style cheese in their case that is, you know, when it comes into the States, when it's on your invoice, it'll say whatever the name of the cheese is, Morbier-style. But then when it gets put out for customers, they're still using an actual Morbier sign. Yeah. So the names need to equal the science, need to equal the <laughs> history, needs to equal the traceability. It all needs to be circular in that oh, way. I think that's why that's we're right. all employed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So we learned a couple things here on the show today. Um, we learned that it's unclear exactly what the EU uh, wants to regulate. But uh, we also learned that this is an important issue. Well, this would be the opportunity to get it right. Exactly. And it's a big opportunity for retailers uh, to sort of uh, clean up their clean up their signage and uh, and start selling people, you know, actually, you know, what's on the tag. That would be great if you'd agree with me on that. Totally. (laughs) And um, the consumer is not to blame. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> so I want to thank both of you guys, uh, Rachel and David, for coming on with me today to discuss this important topic. And uh, I look forward to maybe having you guys back. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about name control issues and cheese in general. As they develop. Thanks, Thanks a Greg. lot. Have Thanks a good Greg one. Uh, this is Greg, um, your host of Cutting the Curd. We'll be back next week. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.